All right. If you're new here, thanks for coming today. I forgot to mention that in our announcements. If this is your first time here, thanks for uh, choosing to come and worship with us this morning. We are um, so glad you're here. There's, a, there's a, a little note card right in front of you that you could fill out, and we can get to know you and connect with you if that's what you'd like. Uh, I'd like to meet you if that's possible as well at some point this morning. Uh, one of the things that we value here at Redemption Hill Bible Church is the preaching of God's Word, and so we uh, meticulously take our time going through um, books of the Bible. We're in Second Peter, preaching through Second Peter, and um, we are just now getting to verse 3 of, of chapter 2, so if, if you've been gone and you're like, wow, he really doesn't move very fast. He was in chapter 2 in June. Uh, yeah, that's, that'd be true. That'd be a true and fair assessment. Um, we just want to make sure that we go as deep as we can uh, in our understanding so that we can go as high as we can in our praise uh, and as wide as we can in our outreach. And so uh, we're in no rush here at Redemption Hill Bible Church, and um, uh, we enjoy studying the Word of God. And if you're new, you came on a, on an, a, a Sunday where we're actually going to talk about the judgment of God. And we're going to talk about the judgment of God because that's what comes next in our Bible. Um, preaching through books of the Bible forces you to teach what comes next. And um, it would be awkward if you showed up this morning and were like, okay, turn to chapter 3, we're done with chapter 2. Um, and uh, this is why, one of the reasons why we believe in expository preaching and preaching through books of the Bible, because we hit every single verse that comes next to us and we just can't jump around and choose and pick the ones that you guys want to hear and talk about. Um, but we are, we're, we're forced to, in a good way, talk about the things that God wants us to talk about because it comes next in our Bible. And so we are coming upon a, a passage here uh, about false prophets and about false teachers and the judgment of false teachers and those who follow in their ways. And uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read... Uh, chapter 2, verses 1 down to verse 10, even into, um, even there's a, a start of a new paragraph, it splits verse 10 into all of verse 10, and then I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to jump into uh, what God's, God's Word has for us. So here's what it says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensualities. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, 
and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority, bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. For as angels the greater in might and power do not pronounce the blasphemy judgment against them before the Lord. Heavenly Father, we do ask as we begin to unpack the Word of God and what you have for us this morning, a specific message for this morning. Lord, we cannot understand these things apart from your Spirit. And so we ask for the Holy Spirit to be active in our hearts, taking these truths, embedding them into our soul, so that we would be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. In April of 1935, a British patent for a radar system for air defense was granted to Robert Watson Watt. Say that 10 times fast. Many scientists and engineers contributed to the development of the radar system, which played a vital role in the Allied victory in World War II. RADAR, an acronym that stands for Radio Detection and Ranging, detects distant objects such as planes and ships by sending pulses of radio waves and measuring the reflected signal. This was crucial for the victory of the Allied forces, especially against German warfare and especially in the Battle of Britain. In many ways, when I think of 2 Peter, I think of it as, P- as Peter giving to us this, this radar system for us to detect false teachers and false prophets. In fact, chapter 2 is there to, to build up our awareness that there are false teachers and there all for, are false prophets that, that have arisen amongst the greater church. And so in many ways, this is a, a warning system for us to know and to identify who the false prophets and who the false teachers are. And what Peter does is he gives us this long runway of chapter one to help us to identify and understand our salvation, for us to understand our sufficiency of, in Jesus Christ in verses three to five, to understand sanctification in verses three all the way down to verse 15, and for us to understand scripture in verses 16 to 21, that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man in verse 16, that we did not follow cleverly uh, devised myths, myths, but rather the Bible that you hold in your hand is the word of God. And because there is truth, there is always going to be a counterfeit. And so he goes right into chapter two and he exposes the counterfeit. How will you identify a counterfeit? And he's been giving to us then features of a false teacher. And I want to walk through kind of what those were just to kind of bring us back. It's the summertime. We're out just enjoying the pool. You know, we see the dust off the brain a little bit here as we jump into God's word. So let me go, go back and give you these features of a false teacher, and then we'll move forward into uh, verses four and, and, and beyond. So number one was this. If we're going to identify a false teacher, we need to know this, number one, that their arrival is assured. Verse one, but false prophets also arose among the people, just like there will be false teachers who will rise among you. They came in the Old Testament. They came when Jesus Christ was on the earth. They came at the inception of the church. And you can be assured that there are false teachers who are around today. 
It is certain. Their arrival is assured. Number two, we saw this, that their strategy is subtle. They don't just come in and announce, I'm the false teacher. I'm the guy that's going to twist words and manipulate you so that you would give me your money. They don't do it that way. That's not how a false teacher works. It says there very clearly that what will they do? They will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Slowly and methodically, they move the needle from true north to get people to follow their ways. They compromise the truth in the name of love. They compromise the truth in the name of outreach. They compromise the truth in the name of, I don't want to offend somebody. I don't want to go against the cultural norms. So I'm going to twist the truth to actually make all of that work together. And like the story of a Trojan horse, they come in to small groups, pulpits, church boards, school boards, deceiving the people and turning the church on its side. You have to be careful for that. Number three was this, and we saw this last week, is that false teachers, false prophets will come in and their doctrine is destructive. It says there that they will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. This is by far the most damaging thing that a false teacher and a false preacher will do. They will come in with destructive heresies. And that word for heresies means to make a choice. You have to decide between the purity of the word of God and the twisted words of a false teacher. You have a choice to make there. And false teachers come in and they they bring in new doctrines and they twist old and ancient doctrines and, and they make them sound even better and even fit the culture of today. Oh, well, that was maybe a sin in the past, but that's, that's not a sin today. Or that, that maybe was wrong back then, but it's not wrong today. Twisting those words, forcing you to make a choice. That's what heresy is. And it says there that they're destructive. But we need to recognize this when it comes to these destructive heresies and when it comes to a false teacher and a false prophet, it's not always what they do say, it's also what they fail to say. They always talk about these great and wonderful things and how wonderful life is and how you can have all this prosperity in life, but they'll, they'll fail to tell you that God is also a God of wrath. So what does a false teacher fail to say? What do they fail to talk about? But it's even more than that. It even says this, that they will even deny the master who bought them. And what does that mean? Uh, it means this, that they will tell you that, hey, you can have Jesus and you can also have the life that you want to have. You can have Jesus and still enjoy your sin. You can have Jesus and not ever make him the master or Lord of your life. They would even deny the master. Trying to make you think that your sin is not as bad as it actually is. Denying obedience to Christ. Softening the truth so that you can continue in the lifestyle that you want to live, that you want to pursue. Whereas true believers affirm that I have been bought with Christ, it is no longer I who live, it is Christ who lives in me. 
They affirm that, that Jesus is my Lord. He is our sovereign. He is the one, my master, who I live for each and every day. And we continue to pursue that kind of life as opposed to, I just want to claim him as Jesus, and then I want to live my life however I want. And because of that, look what it says. They're bringing swift destruction upon themselves. But also this, in our identifying a false prophet and a false teacher is number four is this, is that their pattern is popular. And many will follow their sensualities. Well, of course, that's what they want. They want to find somebody who is going to justify their sin. But yet in some way they think, oh, this is reverent and this is holy and I go to church and I, and I do these things and I follow this person. So, so, it, so it actually feeds their soul in some way, but it is a destructive teaching. I get to have Jesus and live however I want? <laughs> yeah, give me that. So of course it attracts a large crowd. False teachers just tickling the ears of their listeners, putting on a show with messages, giving them what they want to hear and never what they need to hear. Many will follow their sensualities, their lifestyle that eventually ends. And as you peel back the, the curtain, for many, it's a lifestyle of sexual indulgence. And because of that, what does it say? The way of truth is blasphemy, which is number five. Their ministry is maligning. It maligns the church. It slanders the church. Christianity is mocked. Christianity is laughed at as, as these teachers, so-called true teachers, fall into more and more scandals, more and more sexual sin, more and more perversion, more and more greed. The large crowds try to cover for them, and the world looks on, and they mock Jesus Christ. And they say this, see, I told you so. I told you, it's all a fake. Which leads to number six, then, is this. Why do they do this? What's their purpose? Well, their purpose is, purpose is profit. Look at verse three. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Because of their greed and their desire for gain, their desire for popularity, their desire for more, their desire for fame, their desire for money, they will, what, exploit you. They will exploit who you are. How will they do that? They will twist words. They will manipulate words. It's the word that we talked about last week for plastic. It looks real, but then you get close to it and you recognize that it is plastic. It is fake. It is not the real thing. And you can twist it and you can mold it to make it look exactly like the real thing. And this is exactly what false prophets and false teachers do. They take orthodox words and language of the Bible and they twist it and they mold it to fit exactly what your heart wants, not what it needs, what it wants, what it wants to hear. Take those phrases that once meant something and now to the false prophet and the false teacher, they mean something entirely different. You say to yourself, the word of God is being blasphemed. You got all these, these people who are greedy and they're exploiting with false words. Why doesn't God do something about this? Right? Why, why, why is Jesus letting 
These false teachers continually arise and lead and deceive people away. We talked about it. First step was that, uh, uh, is that it separates the sheep from the goats. You'll find out what you are by who you follow. And it's actually a way of, of purifying the church. We also got to recognize this, which leads to, to number seven. By the way, if you want a more extensive study of that, we spent the last couple of weeks looking about that. You can go back and listen for yourselves, but we're going to move forward here. The seventh is this. Their penalty is pending. And that is this. Judgment is coming upon the false prophets. Judgment is coming upon the false teachers. Look what it says, the second half of verse 3. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And Peter takes, and he really even started this in, in, in verse, at the end of verse 1, when he said that there's swift destruction upon him. He actually takes the rest of this time to continually expose and remind us that God will judge the false prophet and the false teacher. They will not get away with what they're doing. So let's unpack this understanding of judgment here. And I've got five points here underneath judgment that I want to look at. If you guys like linear, this, I just try to make it very simple, very linear for us to understand. Number one is this. We're going to see this, the promise of judgment. The promise of judgment. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Meaning this, the judicial action by God has already taken place against these sinister men and women, and the result of judging or the verdict has been rendered as guilty as charged. Their judgment and doom has been announced long ago. The deceivers, the frauds, those making a mockery out of Christ and Christianity, these men and women who are splitting homes, who are tearing families apart, who are splitting churches, who dress up as those who play the part of a true teacher and a true prophet of God, their judgment has actually been declared. God has already, if you will, as a judge, he has taken the gavel and he has said, you are guilty as charged and there is no way to reverse the verdict. They're not being judged now, but don't get discouraged. They will be judged in the future. It has already been set. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their, their destruction is not asleep, meaning this, it's been planned and it's already been determined. That word for idle there in, in the Greek, if you, you can read it out in the Greek, it, it, would, it, would, say, it would say this, that uh, their judgment is not not working. It is not not working because idle means it's not working. But it's not idle, so it's not not working, meaning that it is exactly going to plan. They will be sentenced. They will be judged. They will not be able to continue on as false teachers and false prophets that their day of judgment is coming. 
is not idle. It's also here in this word there for destruction, and it says that their destruction is not asleep. That, that word there, destruction, has the idea, listen to this church, of an execu- executioner. Meaning this, they will literally reap what they sow. And the executioner has not dozed off. He is, he is not asleep. He is not oblivious to what is happening. Sometimes we, we think to ourselves, God, do you actually see what's happening? Do you see the deception that we see? Do you notice it? My, my hands are tied. I cannot do nothing, but I know that you can. What are you waiting for? He has not fallen asleep on the job. He is wide awake. The executioner is waiting for the orders to drop the guillotine, which would represent a physical and spiritual separation of false teachers from God forever and ever. It's a certainty. Pastor John MacArthur says this, what what does this mean to be established long ago? And he says this, the principle that God is going to damn false teachers was set in place long ago. That is a permanent principle by which God has always dealt with false teachers. It has always been so. Old Testament, New Testament, today and in the future. And he says that sentence set long ago against false teachers is not idols. What does he mean by that? It hasn't run out of gas. It isn't so old, it's now worn out. It hasn't been weakened by time. It isn't ineffective, it isn't inactive. It is still valid, it's still operative. It is still potent. And their destruction, he says, their eternal damnation is not asleep. And he personifies destruction as if destruction were an executioner. And he says their executioner hasn't fallen asleep. He is fully awake. This would have been incredible encouragement to the people reading this. God hasn't fallen asleep on those who are mocking and blaspheming his son, Jesus Christ. And I know it's horrific. It uses horrific language. And it's saddening. But it is also just. Because God is a just God. Which leads to number two, which is this, the precedent of judgment. What is the precedent of? Here, Well, it tells us really in verses 4 down to about verse 6, he goes, he goes on with this kind of language. For if God did not, if he did not spare the ancient world, verse 5, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah over and over and over, he said, if, 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 if God actually let these people get away with it, if he lets this, this wickedness continue on and on, and God does not judge them, listen, then God is not a defender of the truth, and God cannot rescue the righteous. He sets the precedent for the way that he is going to handle sin. And this was set long ago, and he gives us three examples here, and all three of these examples in verse 4 and down, they all come out of the, the book of Genesis. And what it does is that it reminds us that God is a just God. 
that God does in fact judge those who do not believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. And what, is, what, God, what Peter is telling us is this, is that, that this is not something new to God, that all of a sudden he's like, whoa, there's false teachers now, what do I do about this? Well, i got to figure out a plan. No long ago, this was already established, no, no, all the way back into Genesis, when there was sin in the world, there, there was a precedent that was set by God by the way that he would handle sin, the way that he would handle false preachers and false teachers and those who would follow him. And the precedent that God set back then is the same as it is today, that punishment is coming, that God is going to right every wrong that has happened. In church, are we not thankful that God will right every wrong? Are we not thankful that God is a just God and and that he is going to judge the sin and debauchery and the, the continual downfall of morality in our nation that we see today? Are we not thankful that God will punish all sin, that he, that he will punish all evil, that, that God has not forgotten us? And we can take encouragement by this. When we have been wronged, God has seen that. And God knows that, and God will punish evil, all evil. And this is not new to God. This is the point. He's always done this. This has always been the perfect plan of God, and God cannot change. He will not change. And the precedent that he said back all the way in Genesis, when the world was very corrupt, even before that with the angels, was that he would punish anyone Who would reject his son, Jesus Christ? And we could take great encouragement in that. And so he gives us then, Peter gives to us then this, the pictures of judgment. And here's the pictures of judgment. Number one is this, the angels. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, what is he talking about? He's talking about the time when at one point all the angels that God has created that God created were holy. They were not marked and stained by sin. And then, then Satan would take a third of them and deceive them. And those fallen angels that even did horrific things, as it says in Genesis chapter one. Genesis, excuse me, chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, where they would take on the form of humanity and have sexual relations with women. And what did God do? God did not spare those angels when they, when they sinned, but he cast them into hell and committed them to the chains of gloomy darkness to be kept there, to be reserved there until judgment, awaiting their final judgment. In Jude chapter 1, it says similar language here, talking, talking about the about the angels, and, and really what Peter does, he, he argues now from, from the greater to the lesser, lesser, he starts with the angelic realm, he goes down then into the ancient world, and then he talks about specific cities, and he's saying if God would let anybody get away with sin, wouldn't it be the angels? Well, no, he wouldn't even let the angels get away with it. He would have to judge them, and they're confined waiting for their judgment, kept until their judgment. 
The second picture is this, that of the ancient world. Peter moves from the angelic realm, the spiritual realm, and he, and he goes and, 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 and speaks of a, a worldwide flood where, where no one other than Noah and seven others were saved. Judgment upon the entire world. You remember in that time and in that story where, where Noah would have to spend years and years and years building an ark and, and everybody would laugh at him and say, no, what are you doing? It hasn't rained here in years. Why are you building an ark? And he would preach to them righteousness. If you don't get in the ark, you will die. Judgment is coming upon you. And they continue to mock him and mock God until the day that it started raining. And God, as it says in Genesis, closed the ark door, and it was done for those people. It says there in verse 5, If he did not spare the ancient world, but he preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, and seven others, he would have brought a flood upon the world, upon the ungodly. Total destruction of the world. As the waters would subside, the world would look entirely different than it once did before the flood. And just like God judged the world in Noah's day for not obeying God and following His commands, so too He will judge these false teachers, these false prophets, and those who follow in their wicked ways. Number three is this. The atrocious cities. He moves from the angelic realm to the world, and now he goes and he talks about specific cities and that of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah, it's very well chronicled, the evil that exists within Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, the very word Sodom is where we get the word for sodomite, for sodomy. The city was known for evil sexual practices, homosexuality, but even beyond that, I won't get into all the details of it. But Sodom and Gomorrah were visuals of the culture that even we find ourselves in or will very soon find ourselves in. A toxic, sexualized culture. One that's getting worse and worse every day. In many ways, Western culture resembles the culture of Sodom. Very dangerous grounds if we do not recognize that our culture is toxic, toxic and dangerous to our very faith. And Peter turns and he says in verse 6, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction. I mean, very, very graphic language. He, he turns Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, and what will he do to the false teachers and false prophets? He will bring them to what? Extinction. He speaks to their judgment here as reducing them to ashes, where there will be no more, where there will be no escape. He will not let the abusers of sex and sexuality, the abusers of sexualizing children, church, he will not let them go free. He is a just God. In the book of Jude, it even talks about the fiery nature of the judgment of these sinners at Sodom and Gomorrah. 
And then he says this, look at what he says and the reason for it. And the second half of verse 6, what does it say? It says he's what? He's making them an example of what he's going to do to the ungodly. Sodom and Gomorrah are an example. They're the pattern. And again, church, this is, should be, as a believer in Jesus Christ, a comfort to know that God is not just allowing this to happen without any judgment upon these people. And I mentioned this earlier, but I want to I want to bring it back to our mind again as we can often get discouraged about the evil around us, can we not? Can we not go a day or two days without hearing again and again another scandal, another child, more abuse that is happening over and over and over again and we think to ourselves, God, are you going to do something about this? We look to our schools and we see it there. We see the lying, we see the stealing, we see the, the manipulation, we see the transgender movement that is going after our children. We, we hear and see it even more so in light of the, the recent movies that are out, the sex trafficking that is happening all around us. Church, go back to this scripture when you get discouraged. This is where you go when you get discouraged. When you get overwhelmed that evil is winning, go back to 2 Peter chapter 2 and remind yourself of Sodom and Gomorrah, remind yourself of what happened there is going to happen to every evil that is going on right now in our world. God is going to judge them. He's going to bring them to ashes. As it says there, they will come to extinction. Turn with me to Romans chapter 2, because I want you to see this. We haven't turned in our Bibles yet to get any cross-reference just to allow Scripture to defend Scripture a little bit here. And what is happening in chapter 2 is it talks about this, this righteous judgment of God upon the world and about what is happening, he says, therefore, that man has no excuse in passing of judgment and other condemned yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? What is this, this language God is saying? He's saying this, turn to the kindness of God. Turn to repentance in God. If not, verse 5, but because of your hard heart and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. And we can read this one of two ways, church. We could read this as an unbeliever with horrific language of judgment, or we can read it as a believer in thankfulness that God is just and he's going to do what he set out to do against all sin. 
and we lean upon what? The kindness of God that leads to repentance. And we thank the Lord for that. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 19, I'll just read it for you. It's a familiar verse. It just says this, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Say, why isn't evil getting punished right now? Why does it feel as though everybody just gets away with it and not only getting away with it, but now it's getting celebrated? Well, that's exactly what it says at the end of Romans chapter 1, is that evil will not only be tolerated, it will even be celebrated. They're going to give hearty approval of it, but then you go into chapter 2. Don't stop in chapter 1. In chapter 2, it goes on, either you're going to embrace the kindness of God that leads to repentance, or you're storing up in your heart for yourselves the day of wrath. Leads to number four. Let's go back to Second Peter and finish this section. Number four is this. What's the, pr- the purpose of this judgment? Why, why this judgment? Why is it happening upon these people? Well, it tells us exactly why. Verse 10. Those who indulge in the lusts of defiling passions and those who despise authority, those who are bold and willful and do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. The purpose of this judgment are for those who live a life of indulging in the lusts of defiling passions. This running thing of sexual immorality flows throughout the false teacher and the false prophet, thinking that there will never be any harm done to anybody, nor would there ever be judgment upon them. Yet, this is exactly what chapter 2 is about. Secondly, they despise authority. They're bold and willful. False teachers and false prophets don't line up under any authority. They do their own thing. They blaze their own trail. They have no accountability, and they live a life with no submission to God. Because they want to claim Jesus, but then live a life of sin. Well, that leads me to my last point, and this one is the most encouraging of all of them because the rest really haven't been too encouraging, but this one is. It's number five. It says the protection from judgment. Here's what we need to understand, church. The character of who God is. Sprinkled throughout this section, there are people who were saved. There were people who were rescued. The point of this passage is not only does God judge the false teacher and the false prophet, but also that God knows how to save the godly. He knows how to save the righteous. There's two sides of the single coin of judgment. One is condemnation and one is salvation. And in here, we see that Noah and seven others were saved. We see that Lot was was rescued. And we recognize this when it comes to, to judgment, that God is in the business of sparing and saving the righteous. In fact, look at what it says in verse 9. This is the verse you underline in your Bible. You highlight it on your device. Then the Lord, what? Knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under the punishment until the day of judgment. We cannot overlook this. We have to underscore this. God is a saving God. God knows how to rescue you from your trials. In fact, Jesus came. His mission statement is this, that the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. 
He came to save the sinner. He came to rescue the godly from their trials. And Peter wants to make sure that the original audience who would, who would take this letter and they would, they would open up the scroll and they read 2 Peter 2, there would be a sigh of relief knowing this, that God is going to judge the evil and he's going to save me from my sin. And it says there this, that, that the Lord knows, meaning whatever trial, whatever hardship that you're going through, at the hands of the evil one, God knows it. He is not idle and he is not asleep to it. He knows exactly what is happening in your life. He knows it. And he knows how to deliver you. He knows how to rescue you. Because this is the character of God. This is who God is. Noah and seven others rescued. Lot rescued. Those who are godly rescued. This is who God is. Turn with me. I want to show you a couple passages in 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy, there's a great passage that speaks to this very thing. In verse 4, or in chapter 4, Paul is encouraging Timothy with similar words about preaching the word. He says, preach the word, verse 2, be ready in season, out of season. You're going to have to reprove them. You're going to have to rebuke them. You're going to have to exhort them and do it all with patience. Why? There's going to come a time when people aren't going to want sound doctrine. They're going to have itching ears and accumulate to themselves teachers that suit their own passions they're going to turn away and they're going to wander off into myths but look down even farther he says these things verse 13 he says when you come bring to me my cloak apparently cold i left with carpus and trost and the books he's got to have his books and above all the parchments and then he says this verse 14 alexander the coppersmith did me great harm there's this guy, Alexander the coppersmith, who was persecuting. What does he say? The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was, what, rescued from the lion's mouth. Verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. What does the Lord do in the times of trial and persecution, church? He will rescue you from it. He will deliver you from it. He will rescue and deliver you from your travel, trial, knowing this, that you will never fade away from him. And so if you're going through hardship at the hands of someone who's doing evil and harm to you, who's hurting you, maybe it's at work, maybe it's family, maybe it's friends, 
and evil and evil is continually going. You're scratching your head and saying, why do good things happen to bad people or bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people? Why is there never justice? Why does it always seem like the, the bad people always win and the good people are always persecuted and hurt? Would you please go back to this passage of scripture and read it and read it and read it and read it? God will judge and God will rescue. He knows you're hurting. He hears your prayers. And he will bring justice, perfect justice. And he will rescue the godly from trials. Yet keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Peter already talked a lot about suffering in his first chapter, and I believe he's just kind of feeding off, or in, the, in his first book, he's continuing to feeding off that. In the meantime, church, what do we do in the meantime? We continually trust the Lord and be as bright of a light in the midst of darkness as possible. We don't give up. We don't give in. We pursue and we march forward in the name of our powerful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. You can't speak about salvation without condemnation, and you can't speak about condemnation without salvation. And Peter has encouraged us this morning, reminding us that those who blaspheme the name of Jesus Christ, those who exploit sexual sins, those who act and behave like those of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, Lord, you're going to bring them to ashes. You're going to bring them to extinction. You're going to judge them. And like you saved Noah, and like you saved the seven others, and like you saved Lot, you're going to save those who believe in your Son, Jesus Christ, for salvation. There's no amount of good works that we could ever do to earn our salvation. It is entirely because of the work of Jesus Christ. And like Noah entered the ark to be saved, may we enter into Jesus Christ, be found in Him, and be rescued by Him and Him alone. Lord, encourage our hearts this morning as we continue to pursue Christ-likeness. Encourage our hearts, even reminding us that we need to continue to press forward in the midst of these dark and troubling days. That we have a mighty warrior behind us. We have a mighty warrior fighting in front of us. And he is just. And we look forward to that day where we will be united with you in glory. And if there's anybody here who has not placed their faith in Jesus Christ, I pray today would be the day of salvation for them. In Jesus' name, amen.